Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. This program is being pre-recorded for publication at Christagenia on Saturday, February 29th. Yahweh God be willing. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Right now it is Wednesday morning, and I am here with our friend Truthvids to once again address Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seedline Doctrine? And this will be part three of our discussion. We're still in chapter two of the book, which is titled The Basis of the Satanic Seedline Doctrine. And once again, I still haven't located a copy of the book which contains the first chapter, which was only two pages long. But if I ever do, I might have to backtrack a bit to address that also. A friend wrote me this week, and I think he may have a copy, so hopefully maybe I could get photographs from him. Now, as I have said several times already, continuing to examine Weissman's arguments and methods of analysis, I'm certain that we shall continue to find that he fails to answer the question which he himself had posed in the title of his book. Hello, Truthfits. Thank you once again for joining me. Hello, Bill. Thanks. It's great to be here. Um, I've been getting some really good feedback uh, on these last two podcasts. Um, lots of questions on the BitChute channel, and generally everyone's liking where we're going with this. And I hope we can keep exposing Charles Wiseman. I had a little look myself as well, trying to find that first chapter. I personally can't find it. I'm beginning to think that there's an error in the book and that the first chapter doesn't exist. But maybe it will turn up in future episodes, hopefully, if it does exist. Right, because it's an entire entry in the title and, and the table of contents. In the title page on the table of yeah, contents. Yeah, I think... Maybe he just put the wrong pages down and, you know, it never actually existed. It's just a, mis a mistake. Well, well, the title, The Basis for the Seedline Doctrine, would have to be missing. And, and perhaps Chapter 2 is really Chapters 1 and 2. I'm, I don't know. I can't read his mind. I, I mean, his <laughs> mind is convoluted. I can't... <laughs> it, if he thinks like he did throughout this book... When he made his chapters, of course he's going to screw it up. That's all I could say. He screwed everything else. Yeah, up. exactly. <laughs> what we um, if you want to share any of your feedback, feel free. Um, what well, mostly it's just been positive comments. Um, uh, not not so much questions, but people just really enjoy it. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's all I've been getting it, especially from forum members from Christogenia as well. Great. That, that's um. I'm not going to twist questions out of them, but yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that they're happy with it. But um, I expect Chris to get people, yet you know, our forum members to be happy with it. If they have any questions, I hope they raise them. If I fail to um, make a good argument, I hope that they can raise questions and force me to do better, or or perhaps offer information on their own volition that, that improves our arguments because I know we're right, but we don't always have 
the, the proper arguments defending them. You, you know, Clifton spent a lot of years um, contending with people over what he believed were false doctrines, like the no devil heresy and, and denying two seed line and things like that. And his, his um, defenses, our defenses over 20 years of doing this got a lot better because it forced us, the arguing, the, 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 the debates, the disputes force you to dig into the scripture in order to better defend your position and, and to find the information you need to defend it. Or, or the way, it, it's not that you don't know something is true. It's just that you have to develop the um, defenses in order to support what is true. So you have to go search for all the evidence to support your position. If you don't find the evidence, then you have to reconsider your position. It's that simple. So it takes a lot of time to do yeah. that. There are things that I've... Uh, yeah, exactly. There are things that I've written Sorry, in the last Sorry, I was year. just going to say, Go you ahead. get used to the same arguments and the same tactics they use to undermine you as well, and you develop a good defense, as you said. Right. Well, I was... A lot of the things I've written in the last year, I've never written before for 20 years. But it, it's... It, it's ways to defend or explain or elucidate our positions that that I, I've only recently conceived. So that's the way it is, and and that's through further study and further study, and finally you make a realization, and you think, why didn't I think of that ten years ago? But you didn't. That's just the way it is. <laughs> this um, we'll discuss it a little later on, I think, but this idea that. The law is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I, I, I had a relationship with Mark Downey for um, eight years, maybe, before his passing, his untimely passing. And, and um, I never heard him say that. But Joe in the forum this morning or last night had made a post quoting Mark saying that. If I'd ever heard Mark say that, I would have realized much sooner that I had a need to address it. And, of course, I never did because I never heard him say it. Before we get back to where we left off in Weissman's book, I would like to discuss this harebrained idea that our interpretation of Genesis chapter 3 had originated in the Talmud. Perhaps this argument belongs at the end of our address of Weissman's book, since he has chapters there which present it. But it is brought to the forefront by his supporters, so we shall address that in part now. Concerning our interpretation, I really don't like to call it two seed line, but we are sort of stuck with the label because it has been so popular for a long time. But to me, the label is too narrow. And the real struggle is between two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And you find two trees at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. But at the end, in Revelation chapter 22, there's only one tree. When I first found two seed line, 
it was 1997 and I began to study it and I didn't have a Talmud. I had never seen a Talmud. All of the ideas that I was presented with never quoted the Talmud. None of the works of um, Bertrand Compare or the writings of Clifton Emmerheiser or anybody else I knew when I first, when I spent my first couple of years before I actually cemented my, my, um, beliefs and made up my mind, all of those works never quoted the Talmud. They only quoted the scriptures and some apocryphal sources, such as Enoch and um, four Maccabees and the Protoevangelion of James. I don't remember one that quoted the Talmud. So I, I don't know if you want to comment on that. Yeah, I was just going to say it just sounds like slander. It's almost like when pagans try to argue that, you you know, Christians follow a Jew, follow Jesus, a Jew, just to try and have that negative impact. And I think in reality, you'd be very hard pressed to ever find a Jew who would, you know, mention to Seedland and try to prove it. It's, it just doesn't happen. This idea that there's these descendants of Cain who are completely evil don't have the Adamic spirit, and the Jews come from them, you'll never get a Jew admit that. They do everything they can to suppress that rather than, you know, try and spread it. So it's just, cra it's just crazy. If they ever do, it's the only purpose would be to infiltrate and destroy Christian identity. That's the only time they may admit some of these ideas, but it's all with a purpose to subvert and then once they're in Christian Christian identity, to destroy it from the inside. That's the only time you will ever get a Jew admit it, right? Well, well right. It, it's If anybody understands the development of the Roman Catholic Church, the later development in, in the medieval period, and I've said this a lot in my um, commentaries on Martin Luther, the most popular... Bible commentaries after the from the 14th century on were written by converso Jews and namely Nicholas of Lyra and Paul of Burgos they were both converso Jews and Nicholas of Lyra wrote a Bible commentary I believe in the 13th century that Paul of Burgos expanded on and he was a former rabbi that was miraculously converted into a Catholic, I can't say a Christian. <laughs> and he expanded on Nicholas of Lyra's commentary. And Martin Luther used that commentary. He quoted those men many times in his work on the Jews and their lies. He's using Jews to refute Jews. Well, that those commentaries by Nicholas of Lyra and Paula Burgos were the most popular commentaries in medieval Europe. And if the Jews wanted to poison Christianity with concepts and ideas from the Talmud, why is it that the Catholic Church always taught that Eve ate an apple and, and had bad thoughts and that caused the fall? Why did the Catholic Church not ever teach that Genesis 3 was about sexual seduction 
I don't remember. I was raised a Catholic. I don't remember that ever being mentioned. And, and I'm sure it hasn't. Why wasn't that written into those commentaries, which generations of churchmen in Europe had perused and learned their Christianity from? These medieval Catholics learned their Christianity from converso Jews. They didn't learn it from Christ. Not at all. So this argument is a totally false argument. As for our teachings on two seed line, the Talmud did not exist in the first century. However, the basis for it seems to have developed from what was called the traditions of the elders. There is a so-called oral law of the Jews, which Christ had condemned and which Moses also condemns, which was eventually written down and compiled into what had evolved and is now known as the Talmud. That doesn't, however, mean that the entire Talmud had already existed in unified oral traditions. It did not. The assorted characters to whom are attributed many of the non-biblical writings in the Talmud did not live for at least two to six centuries after Christ, and some of them even beyond that. So this Talmud contains the so-called oral law, the Mishnah and the Midrash, which are exegetical commentaries and rabbinical disputations of the law, and the Gemara, which is a further rabbinical commentary on the Mishnah, and these also contain elaborations and expansions on scripture, which are apocryphal or even pseudepigraphal, and they are highly interpretative, and they are often perverse in nature. But all of these things were developed and put into writing long after the time of Christ. And that does not mean that the Jews did not have elements of truth mixed in with all their lies and contentions. Of course they had elements of truth. But the Jerusalem Talmud did not exist until the late 3rd or 4th centuries. It was eventually marginalized by the more popular Babylonian Talmud, which did not exist until the 6th century, and which continued to be edited even later than that. But the Christian yeah. works, the Christian works such as the fourth book of Maccabees and the Protoevangelion of James and all of the other citations which we do use that describe the sexual seduction of Eve and the other sins of the fallen angels such as the fragments of Enoch from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those works are far older than the earliest volumes of the Talmud. Even the Aramaic Targums, while they are far from ideal interpretations of Scripture, may have been preserved in the Talmud, but they are not necessarily Talmudic in origin. So Charles Weissman used the claim that two seed line has its origins in the Talmud as a slander, as a defamatory ad hominem argument, which is certainly not true.
Yeah, and also, oh, sorry. Go on, go on. I was just going to say it's very clear that the Jews know who they are and who we are. That's what makes them so dangerous. You know, all the other races, whilst they're a plague upon us, they just go about their lives. And we can see that the Jews have this long-term plan that they've been using for thousands of years to destroy us. So it would make sense that there would be some truths in the Talmud. And I, I have no doubt that they don't reveal everything in there, that there must be other versions of the Talmud that they have you know, amongst themselves and perhaps orally and whatever they discuss in the synagogues, they must be open about their schemes and plans. Um, you know, the protocol of Satan, for example, you can clearly see that there is some kind of plan they've been pushing and it's no coincidence that only white nations are being flooded and that they're only trying to destroy us out of all the races. And right. unfortunately we are blind and that's why we are losing. But fortunately, we have Yahweh on our side, so we know that in the end we'll win. But you can't try and say that this this proves that two seed line comes from the Talmud. It's just crazy. There, there have been modern rabbis, and we have several of these citations documented in various places in Christogenia. There have been modern rabbis who have admitted being of Edom, of Esau, there are modern rabbis that have um, referenced the curse of Cain, that they've made citations of the curse of Cain in reference to themselves, and no true Israelite would admit being or suffering under the curse of Cain. No true Israelite would admit being of Esau, of Esau Edom. These things are... <laughs> Absolutely contrary to the concept of being a real Hebrew or a real Israelite. So we have these rabbinical admissions, which were meant for Jewish audiences, not for Christian audiences. But every once in a while, they say something in a speech or in, in, a, in an article, and some goyim finds it and, and points it out to the rest of the sheep. Most of the sheep blatantly ignore it and don't want to consider the consequences. But it has happened. But they don't like to admit those things publicly. They won't. They'll keep swearing that they're Israel, in spite of the fact that many of their more learned, and I say that kind of sarcastically, their more learned rabbis admit being of Esau or of Cain. So they're constantly in conflict with themselves, because they know that they're lying. A lot of them do. Perhaps not all of them, but a lot of them do. The Wisdom of yeah. Solomon. The Wisdom of Solomon. Fragments of this book were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a book far older than the rabbinical writings in the Talmud. And the work states at the end of its second chapter that nevertheless, through envy of the devil, came death into the world. So that is how Solomon had interpreted Genesis chapter 3, where Eve saw the tree and, and saw that it was good for food and to make one wise. Solomon understood that that was envy of the devil, not envy of a wooden tree. 
but that Eve envied the devil. For that reason, as we find in Genesis, when Yahweh God corrected her, he told her, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. It, it's very clear that Solomon saw that as a sexual seduction. Through envy of the devil came death into the world. Envy of a, of a man, of a person, not envy of a wooden tree. We've already, <laughs> last week, we made these citations. We've already cited the Protovangelium of James and four Maccabees, the fourth book of Maccabees, in this same regard. I don't think I, I actually quoted the Protovangelium of James. I had actually just mentioned it. But in the Protovangelium of James, there's a portrayal. I believe it's in the 10th chapter, if it's been 20 years since I've read it. I believe it's in the 10th chapter. There's a portrayal of Joseph and Mary. And Joseph comes home from work and finds that Mary is carrying a baby. But Joseph hadn't coupled with her yet. He hadn't known her yet. So he made the exclamation, is the history of Adam repeated in me? Because the writer of the Protovangelium of James understood that Adam found Eve pregnant, but he didn't do it. Joseph is portrayed as making that same exclamation, is the history of Adam repeated in me because he found his betrothed wife pregnant, but he hadn't consummated the marriage. So <clears throat> that's why we cite the Protovangelium of James. I do not accept it as authentic scripture. However, it does give further insight into the fact that early Christians interpreted Genesis chapter 3 in the same manner which we do. Likewise, for Maccabees, which is a pious Christian work, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm froggy-throated, for Maccabees, the fourth book of Maccabees is a pious Christian work, although it should not be deemed as canonical scripture but also interpreted Genesis chapter 3 in the same manner in which we interpret that account. The Aramaic Targums also sought to amend Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, asserting that a fallen angel was the biological father of Cain. We can demonstrate that Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 had indeed been corrupted at an early time, for which even the earliest translators found the verse very difficult to translate. I would turn to the Hexapla of Origen, which is a work of the 3rd century, to help make that demonstration. Hopefully we shall discuss that passage at, a, at length later in these presentations, as Weissman holds it up as proof refuting our position, and it doesn't refute us at all once it's properly examined. So early Christians and pious writers from before the time of Christ had understood that Genesis chapter 3 was an account of Eve's sexual seduction 
and the subsequent sexual transgression which Adam and Eve had committed. And so did early Jews, who referred to it later in their Talmud. Just because something appears in the Talmud does not mean that it may not be true, even if the version of the account as the Talmud presents it may be twisted. The Jews understood that Genesis chapter 3 was an allegory describing a sexual act. Early Jews understood Hebrew and the idioms of Hebrew a lot better than we do today. <clears throat> and early Christians, as well as the author of the Wisdom of Solomon, also believed that it was a sexual allegory. What we call two seed line cannot be condemned on the basis that it is mentioned in the Talmud. Making the claim that two seed line came from the Talmud is essentially no different than reading the Talmudic passages that refer to Christ and then claiming that Christianity came from the Talmud. The Torah itself, the law of the Old Testament, is also found in the Talmud. So was that devised by wicked Jews? Of course not. Yeah, and it's uh, clear these, this race of Kenites have always tried to suppress two seed line by ordering the scriptures rather than promote it, like Wiseman is trying to say. And you can also even see many passages uh, where they mock Christ and they mock the prophets. You know, they say, uh, well, I won't repeat it, but they say horrible things about them. It's clear that they are a race that are opposed to the Israelites and Christ and Yahweh and that they are of this seed of Cain, it's just obvious. Well, well, right. Once you understand the New Testament, it's absolutely obvious. But they did try to suppress this. Okay, if they had not suppressed this, then it would have been well-known in Europe because it would have been included in those medieval commentaries, which were made by Jews, which were the most popular commentaries in medieval Europe. And it would have eventually ended up in the Catholic catechism. But it didn't. And the Catholic Church would have nothing to do with this. Nothing at all. Yeah. And that's why, you know, they've taken it even further now, pushing evolution and that we're all one race. I'm sorry. Species of animals. But humans are one race. That... Sorry, did I cut out? Yes. From evolution. <laughs> okay. I was just saying. Yep, that now they take it even further because they can get away with it. They completely um, say that God doesn't even exist and they push evolution, etc., etc., and that we're all one race. It's clear it comes from them. They're not pushing two seed line at all. Right, because two seed line, it is um, the expression, it, it's the, the expression of the fact that not all of the world's people have the same origin. They didn't all come from the same place. Yeah. We aren't all the same. In our last presentation addressing Weissman, we demonstrated his deceptive dishonesty in interpreting the statements of Paul of Tarsus concerning Eve, which are found in his epistles to the Corinthians and to Timothy. 
Weissman actually claimed an ability to read Paul's mind while ignoring half of what Paul had said, which is the half which proves Weissman wrong about what he claimed Paul was thinking. Doing that, we also mocked him for his assertions denying the allegorical use of the word eat in reference to sex, which is easily refuted in the Proverbs. Weissman asserted that Eve committed some sort of thought crime, an idea which we also ridiculed since Eve was punished and nowhere in the law are mere thoughts punished. Since both Adam and Eve were punished, as we explained at length from the words of the apostles, then there had to be both a law and an act of transgression of that law. That's the only way that you merit punishment in scripture. After that, we further mocked Weissman for not properly distinguishing between trees planted into the ground, which were literal fruit trees, and the two trees which were not planted into the ground, which were in the midst of the garden, which were actually allegories for people. But where Charles Weissman is deceptive beyond belief, in my opinion, is in his claim that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was or is the law, which we have also already discredited. If that tree were the law, there is no doubt Yahweh would have wanted Adam and Eve to cling to it, to eat from it, which is a sentiment found throughout the entire scripture. But instead, when they transgressed, they weren't told to grab the tree of knowledge in the law. They were not told to keep the law to be saved. Instead, they were told that they must reach out and grasp the tree of life in order to be saved. As Paul of Tarsus explained, the law was not given until Sinai. Adam and Eve were only given one law, which was not to touch of the tree. That was the only law given to them or to their descendants for many generations. Since there had to be a law for them to have been justly punished, as the apostles themselves explained, then it is the transgression of that law for which they were punished and for which their descendants were punished as it is described in Genesis chapter 6. If the tree were the law, then Yahweh God is found to be contradicting himself, giving them a law which commands them to stay away from the law. That's crazy. Weissman deserves ridicule for that because by his ridiculous assertion, he is actually mocking God. Instead, it's Charles Weissman who should be mocked. <laughs> I, I, I don't believe that this hasn't been, that this ridiculous concept has not been confronted earlier 
by other two seed line pastors or teachers who were before me. I, I don't know. I didn't go searching through Clifton's papers, but I don't ever remember him um, addressing this at length. I should go looking for it, but he mentions that tree of knowledge of good and evil so often that, that it would probably be difficult to find in, in his 200 and something teaching letters. And a and hundred. Well, I think sometimes, sometimes people read stuff like Charles Wiseman and then they'll make up their own arguments, you know, build liars upon lies. When they realize people ridicule him, they'll come up with their own arguments. Well, well, right, but their own arguments are going to be even more ridiculous. <laughs> I, I explained a, a long time ago that scripture was like a computer program to me when, when, when I approached it. And I, I had experience in computer programming. And when I approached the scripture, I realized after I read the Bible for the first time that if something... Um, if you believe something based on a particular scripture, that it must hold up throughout the entire scripture. If it is not true throughout the scripture, then there's a problem with what you believe. If you can't take the word of God and make one half contradict the other half, you can't do that. You can't pit God against himself, which is essentially what they do. You can't interpret any scripture so that your interpretation conflicts with other scriptures or you're actually contending with God. You have to understand the scripture in, in a manner which is consistent throughout the scriptures. Otherwise, you're failing and you're really only kidding yourself because God is not going to be mocked in the end. So, in a computer program, if you have one wayward function, then all the other functions that call that one in order to do some operation with data are going to be broken because your one wayward function is not behaving properly. It's the same with scripture. If you have one crazy interpretation of a verse, and you insist on standing on that interpretation as a foundational truth, then everywhere else in scripture where it conflicts with your perceived interpretation, you're going to have a problem and you're going to have to twist every other scripture. That's what Weissman's doing. Yeah, it's, it's the same with um, you know, evolution. Like when you just think about it, it's a joke. You you can't just interject something into a DNA. Just like if you have a Java code, you can't just uh, input some Python. It just won't compile. It won't work. Evolution is just not logical, uh, along with you know all these force theories. It's just crazy. Well, well, absolutely. Evolution isn't logical because nothing that is ordered comes about through random circumstances. The, the Romans had a saying, ex nihilo nihil fit, from nothing, nothing comes. Nothing comes from nothing. We were designed to function the way we are, 
we were designed by a God who is more powerful and, and more intelligent than we are. And we function the way that he made us. And when there's a misfunction, I, I mean, sometimes there are external causes, that environmental causes, which cause us to malfunction. And sometimes it's just because we're bastards and malfunction. We don't know how life would be if there were no bastards. We can't conceive of it. Yeah. How wonderful everything would be if there was no <laughs> rebellion against God that corrupted his creation. Okay. After mocking Weissman for claiming that the tree is the law that they were supposed to stay away from, after that, we further mocked Weissman for not properly distinguishing between trees planted in the ground, these literal trees, and trees in the midst of the garden. And when Adam and Eve transgressed, they were not told to keep the law, to grasp the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which Weissman claims is the law. They were told to reach out and grasp the tree of life in order to be saved. As Paul of Tarsus explained, the law was not given until Sinai. Adam and Eve were only given one law. And if the tree was the law, Yahweh God would be found to be contradicting himself, giving them a commandment, a law, which commands them to stay away from the law. That's ridiculous. We left off with Charles Weissman and this claim that Eve's seed is anyone who came from Eve's womb. And we disproved the assertion because children of mixed race, as we were just talking about bastards, clearly do not have seed which is identical to their mother. So the child would not be of the same seed. You can't couple with a negress or a mestiza and claim that the child is your seed when half of that child's chromosomes came from a source other than your own. And the same is true of any hybrid, either of plants or of animals. Therefore, it is not true that a woman's seed is anyone who comes from her womb. That's not true. Bill, was you going to uh, briefly mention that even in that, that, that famous, you know, Genesis 3.15 verse where it says your seed and our seed, that the two words seed are actually different words, that it's a single seed and a mixed seed. I know you probably don't want to go into too much depth. And when I say single seed, I don't mean single plural, but one race of seed. And the serpent seed is a mixed hybrid seed because that just completely blows this whole spiritual nonsense out the water if you understand, you know, the origin of the Hebrew words there. That there is a use of the word seed from a word kilium, which is which denotes a pair of something that is locked up together in a cell because the root word means a prison but the word is actually um, the, the word is actually a dual form in its in its um, grammatical case. 
and and it's in in Hebrew they had a singular, a plural, and a dual. They didn't just have singular and plural. Actually, early Greek actually had also had a dual, where we use an an s at the end to represent more than one of something, right? Or or, or what we we use other words to denote more than one of something. We have a ball and we have balls, which is more than one ball, right? Well, the the Hebrews actually had a third form that we don't have in English, and it designated two, a pair. And there is a word, kileim, which is often um, used in that manner to describe seed that's not seed of a pure form, but seed which is two diverse types locked within one another. But that's not the case here in Genesis 3.15. Both seeds come from the word zera, which show that it's, it's um, two different races. Both seeds come from zera. The serpent's seed and the woman's seed are distinguished from one another. I would have to go back and, and look at the word kiliim to see where it does appear. But I do know what you're saying. But that's just not. The oh, case. right. Sorry, I was completely wrong then. There. Sorry, I apologize. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I mean, it's probably the way that you remembered Clifton's writing. But here there is the serpent has Zera and the woman has Zera. So they must be two different seeds. They can't be. Um, they can't be the same. Yeah. So we'll have to. Um, I, I, I know you said something about that just in passing in our first or second presentation but i didn't really know what you were getting at un until you just mentioned it but we will i'll make sure that i have that for the next presentation because that okay it, it does it is important but it doesn't appear until a little later in scripture but it is an important concept to understand that somebody of mixed race is actually actually has um, two different seeds locked up in the same cell. And that's what the word attempts to describe. That's, that's the only thing the word can possibly describe. But I don't have um, a Hebrew concordance to scripture. I, I, I only have an English one. And I have to, I could search on Hebrew words, but I have to find it first and and... I just can't do that on the fly. I'm sorry. <laughs> or outside <world. laughs> No problem. The New Testament recognizes the origins of sin. Where the Apostle John had written in chapter 3 of his first epistle, that whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And that's an... And a lot of people don't understand that concept, so they spiritualize it all. But that's not true at all. His seed remains in him. That's that word sperma. If you're pure, if you're pure of race, because God only created things that are pure. The children of God will ultimately be blameless from sin because sin was introduced into the world for envy of the devil as the wisdom of Solomon had attested. 
But for Cain, sin, and we see this in Genesis chapter 4, sin lieth at the door because he was born in sin. For that reason, he could not do good. God challenged him to do good, and he failed, and we should learn from that example. Finally, we examined yeah. Weissman's claim that Eve's seed could not have been a collective seed, as no people or nation was named after her. But we have shown that Sarah and Rebecca had also been given promises concerning their collective seed, which Paul had even mentioned in his epistle to the Romans. With that, we illustrated the fact that even though the seed is named after the line of the father, the nature and identity of the mother still matters, and Weissman's argument is once again exposed as being dishonest and deceptive. The woman does have seed. There are, in each ova, or ovum, I should say, in the singular, a woman has ovaries, and they produce these ova, or eggs, and one egg is called an ovum. In each ovum within a woman's reproductive tissues, there are 26 chromosomes. I'm sorry, 23 chromosomes. And in each of a man's sperm, there are 23 chromosomes. These are, are basically, if they're of the same race, these are identical seeds, which when they join, create a child of 46 chromosomes, each of the 23 chromosomes lining up with the other to create 23 pairs or 46 chromosomes. A woman has seed every bit that a man has seed, even though her seed is called eggs and a man's seed is called sperm. In our, in, in our language, the way we describe it, they're essentially equal except in their form, but they're equal in their substance. They each carry 23 chromosomes that are transmitted to their offspring when the eggs are fertilized. That fertilization is the act of yeah. the 23 chromosomes from the sperm joining to the 23 chromosomes from the egg. So a woman does have seed. And, and I've seen other um, people trying to refute to seed line actually make the claim that a woman doesn't have seed. Weissman didn't go quite that far, but he did verge on it by trying to deny Eve any portion in the, the heritage that would come from her. Then everyone would just look identical to their father, wouldn't they? Well, well that, then we may not have ever had um, more than one sex. Maybe we would only had one generation. It all died. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And Bill, I just wanted to just quickly go on that... Um, you know, that they bring sin into the world. You can also see with the Jews, they're always trying to pervert our society. Um, even today, some countries and states, they still outlaw abortion. You know, they're still hanging in there. They outlaw gambling. They outlaw, um, you know, prostitution. 
um, strip clubs. And it's not whites who are out there campaigning to get it in. It's the Jews who are pushing and pushing to bring all the perversions into society. And, you know, that's clearly explained with two seed line that they are the race of devils who destroy and corrupt our society. And this one seed line just doesn't add up. Well, right. And we'll have an opportunity to talk about that a little later when I discuss the first epistle of John, when we get to there, to that point. Because that's an excellent point that, that, that should be raised there. Because Weissman fails to make a distinction that, admittedly, all translators that I have seen fail to make. And there's a very important distinction in John's language in his first epistle that all translations I have seen fail to make. And, and we'll get to that in, in, in just, a short, just a short while, I believe, if we get that far in this presentation. But we could take three hours. I don't care. That's up to you. <laughs> I don't know what your schedule is this sure. evening. This evening, I say, because it's your evening, right? Yeah. Now, we shall continue from where we had left off in Weissman's book, which brings us to page 11. Here, Weissman takes another dishonest turn where he tries to explain that by the seed of the woman, only Christ himself is meant. So he says, and I quote, what then does all of this mean? There really is no obscurity associated with Genesis 3.15. This verse has for centuries been understood as being a prophecy of Christ and his salvation of Adamic man. And then he's citing another writer. Professor Davidson states the following about Genesis 3.15. Note the transition from the serpent seed to the serpent himself, and also the fact that the seed of the woman is in the singular. Well, so is the seed of the serpent. Only in Christ, the seed of the woman, could this victory be accomplished, and from this it was to become true for mankind in him. Romans 16.20 and 1 Corinthians 15.57 or 457, it looks like there's a typographical error in that citation. It's not important to me because I didn't dig out the citations. Um, Romans 16.20, Paul assures the Romans that Yahweh would crush Satan under their feet shortly. Weissman then responds to this citation, and he says, Genesis 3.15 refers specifically to Jesus Christ, as he was the only one who was born of the seed of of a woman, and actually we were all born of a seed of a woman, and he says, and not of a man. The verse could refer to the Adamic race or seed line only in an indirect or vicarious sense, as they were to prevail over the serpent through Christ. Now, not all of Weissman's response is wrong. Since we certainly agree that the race, that our race can only succeed through Christ. But that does not mean that Christ alone is the seed of the woman. In fact, Paul never said, and the Old Testament never promised, 
that in Jesus would your seed be called. Paul, in his epistle to the Romans, said that he quoted Genesis and said, in Isaac shall your seed be called. And then Paul explained that the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So Paul defines the seed as the children of the promise, not as Christ alone. And there are other scriptures which would support what Paul said there. In fact, there are several, but I didn't, that this is extemporaneous and I didn't do an entire paragraph or two on it. I probably should. But first I must ask that if Christ is not the seed of a man because he was born of a woman, then how is he the seed of David? Was David not a man? The same Paul who wrote Galatians 4.4, saying that Christ was born of a woman, also wrote Romans chapter 1, verse 3, and 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, which describe Christ as being of the seed of David. And so did the Apostle John in chapter 7 of his gospel say that Christ was of the seed of David. Therefore, Paul's profession in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, does not establish that Weissman's assertion concerning Genesis 3.15 is true. Christ was born of a woman, but he was also of the seed of a man, King David, who was but one of his male ancestors. We'll probably get back to this subject, but first we have a few other things to discuss. As a digression, making this argument, and this is important to me because it shows how Weissman thinks, right? Weissman is absolutely dishonest where he says, speaking of Genesis 3.15, that in regard to the woman's seed, scripture does not say they, but it, or more correctly, he. Now, he is right about that, that the King James always or very often has the neuter pronoun it, where it should have the masculine pronoun he but the idiom was different in the 16th century than it is today. Weissman says, and I'll repeat, in regard to the woman's seed, scripture does not say they, but it shall bruise the head of the serpent. The he and or it and the corresponding his are singular. Now, I would retort that if Weissman ever really studied any of the Hebrew of the Bible, he would have known that he was making a lie here, but perhaps he did know it. I don't know how he missed this. Where the Hebrew language employs a word as a collective noun, it always uses singular nouns and pronouns. For example, in Genesis chapter 22, we read, where Yahweh's talking to Abraham, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed, singular, as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand, singular, which is upon the seashore. And thy seed, singular, shall possess the gate of his, singular, enemies. But sometimes this creates a conflict in English. So a singular Hebrew pronoun is sometimes translated into an English plural. 
For example, in Genesis 24, in verse 60, where it says, again, Yahweh speaking to the patriarchs, and let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them, where the word for seed is singular, and the word translated as them, which is plural in English, right? But in Hebrew, in that passage, it's also actually singular. For another example, where it says in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14, that thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou, a singular second person pronoun, that's important because it destroys Weissman, and thou shalt spread abroad. The word for seed is singular, and the verb which is rendered as thou shalt spread abroad, which refers to the seed, is a singular verb, but the verb is a second person singular, which refers to Jacob as being representative of his descendants. This also exposes a major flaw in Weissman's argument. In that same place, Weissman had also said of Genesis 3.15 that the references to the serpent himself, which is singular, and thus not its seed line. But if Yahweh can say thou to Jacob when he is clearly speaking in relation to Jacob's descendants, then the same interpretation of the language in Genesis 3.15 is also valid that Yahweh addressed the serpent in relation to the serpent's descendants. This sort of language appears throughout the scripture, notably in the blessings which Jacob gave to his sons in Genesis chapters 48 and 49. In Genesis chapter 48, Jacob told Manasseh that he would be a company of nations. He told Ephraim that he would be a great nation. Did Manasseh himself become a company of nations, or was he speaking about Manasseh's descendants? In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob told Judah that he would always bear the scepter. So did Judah ever reign as a king over Israel, or did his descendants? Which is it, Weissman? <laughs> because you're an idiot and a liar and a fool and a deceiver. Joseph is a fruitful bow, and it describes his branches as running over a wall. Did Joseph turn into a tree and his branches go over the wall? Or is that an allegory concerning his descendants? Come on. He can't have it both ways. He can't deny this about Genesis 3.15 when the same language appears throughout the Bible. He's a fool. Wow. I want to I, I just smack him when I see stuff like this. I really do. Because <laughs> it's like a blatant lie. Focusing on this one verse, he makes a blatant lie. If you actually read the scriptures, it's all over the place that that's the way the language was used. And people yeah. read Weissman's book and they get fooled by these blatant lies. And um, if Jacob could refer to all his descendants, then it surely could also be the other way that Satan could also be collectively all the enemies 
all the adversaries to Yahweh and our race. Absolutely. That's something people also need to realize. Absolutely. That's the way these terms are used in Scripture. The singular is used of a collection of people. The, the woman, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went off to make war with the remnant of her seed. Now that remnant is a remainder. Christ was already caught up to heaven. Who are the remnant of the seed? Is it one person? Maybe like one apostle? <laughs> who, who did Christ have children we don't know about? Who are this remnant of her seed? This I'm sorry. That's incredible. For, for years I used Skype and it never rang if I was on the phone, if I was on a Skype call. And, and now I get <laughs> Skype calls while I'm on a Skype call. Microsoft is absolutely horrible. And, and some gook must have programmed that or screwed that program up. Yeah, written in China. Yeah, I'm sorry. I have multiple devices and, and I'm on a Skype call. That's never happened until recently. So there's another aspect to how Charles Weissman had lied about the manner in which the Hebrew was actually used in this verse, Genesis 3.15. A singular collective noun, even though it is collective, was used with singular pronouns, even though the meaning refers to many individuals within the collective unit. Where God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 26, I will make thy seed singular, to multiply as the stars, plural, of heaven. The word for seed is singular, but the word for stars is plural. Where Yahweh spoke of Israel collectively in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 5, and he said, I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west, that thee and thy seed are all the same. And he's referring to thee just like he did with the serpent in Genesis 3.15, he's referring to thee in reference to the descendants, the, the plural children of Israel. He said, I will bring thy seed. Thy is a singular pronoun. Seed is a singular noun from the east, meaning that he was going to bring a bunch of, a multitude of, their descendants from the east, and gather thee, a singular pronoun, from the west, meaning that they would also have a multitude of descendants in the west that he was going to gather. All of the Hebrew nouns and pronouns in that passage are singular. There are so many examples of this in scripture that Weissman could not possibly have been ignorant of them. Therefore, he must have consciously lied. Again and again, Weissman resorts to sophistry. If Weissman really knew that two seed line is not true, why did he have to manufacture so many lies in order to dispute it? Yeah, when, when you speak the truth, you don't need to. You just present the facts and the, the truth speaks for itself. Absolutely. But when you're trying to lie, you need to come up with all these cunning, you know, weave arguments and weave them round lie after liar to try and, you know, come up with these crazy ideas. 
Well, well, right. You, 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 you just made a good statement. You present the facts and the truth speaks for itself. I recently heard of an, a former friend of yours and, and of mine say the truth speaks for itself. I actually didn't hear it. I saw it in writing on the Internet. Say the truth speaks for itself. But this person didn't say you present the facts. <laughs> they missed that part. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Weissman hasn't presented a, a, any, any facts. Uh, none of his arguments are facts. They've all been shown to have, to, to have been built on a false premise. From this point, we're on page 12 of his book now. From this point, Weissman begins to cite many Judaized commentaries in a prolonged attempt to prove that Christ alone is the seed of the woman. Now, not everything he says and not everything that the commentaries say is wrong. A lot of it's right. But the premise which Weissman is attempting to establish by quoting them is wrong. So here I'm only going to address some of the things which are wrong. Um, if, if you're reading along with this and you think I missed anything that's important to mention, you're free to bring it up and, and, and discuss it. Okay, sure. Weissman quoted Adam Clark, who states that concerning Christ, that he is the seed of the woman. The person is to come by the woman and by her alone, without the concurrence of man. Now, while Clark is not completely wrong, that there is some legitimate symbolism in this. That does not mean that the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 is not collective. As we shall see, Adam Clark certainly was wrong when he said in that same place that this and this alone is what is implied in the promise of the seed of the woman bruising the head of the serpent. For now, we shall only state that if Adam Clark was right, then Paul of Tarsus was wrong, where he told the Romans that Yahweh would bruise Satan under their feet over 30 years after. This is the key part of that verse. Over 30 years after the crucifixion. And I would rather believe Paul of Tarsus. Immediately thereafter, Weissman cites the Wycliffe Bible Commentary, and he ignores the fact that Wycliffe actually supports our argument, evidently because Weissman was not focused on that portion of the citation. And this, to me, actually helps to prove that Weissman is stupid. And Weissman said, citing the Wycliffe Bible Commentary, Genesis 3.15 has become so thoroughly identified as a prophetic promise of Christ that is called the protovangelium. He should have had that. It is called the protovangelium. This term means the beginning of the gospel message. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary states on the... On, states the following on this verse, and here's the citation. We have in this famous passage called the Protovangelium, first gospel, the announcement of a prolonged struggle, perpetual antagonism, wounds on both sides, and eventual victory 
for the seed of the woman. God's promise that the head of the serpent was to be crushed pointed forward to the coming of Messiah and guaranteed victory. This assurance fell upon the ears of God's earliest creatures as a blessed hope of redemption. The ministry of Christ lasted only three and a half years. And while Christ told the scribes and Pharisees what he had thought about them, he certainly did not cause them any physical harm. He did not cause them any wounds. Where the Wycliffe Bible Commentary explains that the verse indicates that there would be a prolonged struggle and perpetual antagonism and wounds on both sides, it is evident that they had in mind two discernible groups of people who would be at odds with one another over a long period of time, fighting with and causing harm to one another over the entire period of time. Here we shall show here we shall show that about this that the Wycliffe commentators are correct. Here we shall show that the Wycliffe commentators are correct and Weissman is indeed stupid. I didn't get a chance to edit my notes before the program. I apologize for that. Other commentaries cited by Weissman on pages 12 through 14 of his book make references, make remarks in reference to things such as the complete destruction of Satan and his works. Fatal shall be the stroke which Satan shall receive from Christ. And they make these references in respect to the death of Christ. They are saying that it's the death of Christ that accomplished these things. Then Weissman cites Bullinger as saying that Zerah, seed, here, meaning Genesis 3.15, is to be taken in singular. And concerning, <clears throat> concerning other words in Genesis 3.15 that, quoting Bullinger, they denote the temporary sufferings of the seed, meaning Christ, and the complete destruction of Satan and his works. Then he cites Matthew Henry as saying that Christ on the cross had gained his victory over Satan, thereby by his death. Now, Bullinger, as an aside, Bullinger was well-versed in the Talmud, and the Kabbalah, and a lot of his work, Numbers in Scripture, came from the notes of the Masoretic Hebrews. So Bullinger was steeped in Judaism, but he denied two-seed line. So I'm, that this claim that two-seed line comes from the Talmud is basically ridiculous, because none of the <laughs> medieval Christians that learned their Christianity from Jews ever taught two seed line. <laughs> Why not? They would have all been teaching it. We must contest all of these statements which Weissman cited, all of these commentaries which he cited, in part by asking, did Christ win his victory in death? Or did he really win victory in his resurrection? Was his victory immediate at the time of his resurrection? Or was his ultimate victory 
which would not culminate until some point in the future, merely assured at the time of his resurrection. They're confusing these, these concepts. If the victory of Christ were immediately, then we may conclude that his revelation is not true. If his victory were immediate, then the revelation is not true. Furthermore, if his victory were immediate, we should not expect to see any evil in the world since the time of his resurrection. Yet, his revelation has proven itself to be true. Although it was written 60 years after the resurrection, and it describes a victory which would not occur until some undetermined time in the future, while we still have evil in the world. So Satan was not defeated and eliminated at the cross, which is what these commentaries have claimed and which is the way in which Weissman interprets them all. That's why he cited them. On page 14, strangely, where Weissman cited a comment from the Geneva Bible which said, Satan shall sting Christ and his members, but not overcome them. Weissman failed to make any statement concerning the phrase, and his members, or imagine them to be from the seed of the woman as he is. Then, citing other commentaries, among Weissman's other conclusions, he stated that the evil power of Satan is eliminated by Christ. Thus, also, the victory is over evil, and that the serpent thus met his doom with Christ's advent, passion, death, and resurrection. They're the words of Weissman. After he made all these commentaries, these are Weissman's other conclusions after he cited all these commentaries. But is this true? Is Satan really eliminated? Is Satan really dead and gone? Do we still have evil in the world? If any of this is true, why do we read in Revelation chapter 12 that after the dragon tried to slay the man-child born of the woman, and after the man-child is caught up into heaven, that when the dragon saw that he was cast unto earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness in Europe, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. The woman is representative of the whole race. The whole race of people who would descend from Eve, who were her seed. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Now, is that the woman being carried away? Like Joseph is a fruitful bow, right? Or like Judah will always hold the scepter. Was that the woman herself being carried away? Or was that her descendants? And if that was her descendants, and the dragon was wroth with the woman, 
and went to make war with the remnant, the remainder of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and had the testimony of Christ. If the woman was carried away by the flood, fine. But if her descendants were carried away by the flood, and if her descendants are the remnant of her seed, which keep the testimony of Jesus Christ, then the seed of the woman is collective. And Jesus Christ is a member of that seed. As Paul said, that Christ was firstborn among many brethren. And the rest of those many brethren are the remnant of the seed, the collective seed. Charles Weissman is stupid. The Wycliffe Bible. Which those, those verses, um, they describe so well what is going on now, don't they? They describe Just exactly that. what is happening to all our countries. And that's why it's the revelation of Jesus Christ who warned us what was going to happen to the seed of the woman. <laughs> and Weissman's saying, oh no, the seed is only Christ. But Christ himself is saying that the woman has seed that are many descendants because that's what the serpent is making war against the remnant of her seed. So Charles Weissman is arguing with Jesus Christ. Oh no, Jesus is wrong. The seed is only one. It's only Christ himself. Jesus Christ is saying that the dragon would make war with the remnant of her seed. After he himself is caught up into heaven, that's what the revelation is. If we believe our scripture, we believe that the revelation is indeed the revelation of Jesus Christ. So these are his words. He's explaining the remnant or remainder of the woman's seed. So how could you go back to Genesis and say, oh, no, the woman only had one seed, and that's Jesus himself? That's bullshit. That's so obviously wrong that Charles Weissman is stupid or, or because he really can't be that stupid. He's a purposeful liar. The Wycliffe Bible, which he quoted, said of Genesis 3.15 that we have in this famous passage called the Protoevangelium, first gospel, the announcement of a prolonged struggle, perpetual antagonism, wounds on both sides, and eventual victory for the seed of the woman. But Revelation chapter 12 proves that this struggle is still ongoing after the man-child is caught up into heaven. The man-child, which the serpent tried to kill, is Yahshua Christ, who was caught up to heaven in Acts chapter 1 at the ascension which followed his resurrection. The apostles asked him, Will you at this time deliver unto us, unto Israel, the kingdom? And he said, It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. In other words, it ain't time yet. Because first... The dragon goes off to make war against the remnant of the woman's seed. The serpent was represented in that aspect by, by Herod, the Edomite Jew, who descended in part from Cain himself, through Canaan and the Rephaim and Esau and right down the line. Then where it says that the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, we see the continuation of the enmity of Genesis 3.15.
the continuation of Wycliffe's prolonged struggle. And Revelation describes that continuation all the way up to the time when the resurrected Christ would return once again, as we're also told in Acts chapter 1. We have been in that time ever since the ascension of Christ. The dragon, the collective seed of the serpent, continues to make war with the collective seed of the woman unto this very day. Weissman is... Wasn't to... um, Wycliffe a two-seed liner as well, Bill? I, I really don't know because I haven't read Wycliffe's writings, if he has any. I really don't. Wycliffe okay. was... The Wycliffe Bible Commentary was not necessarily written by Wycliffe. It was written by um, later Christians, well, maybe Christians, who claim to be followers of Wycliffe or whatever, or who are just using his name as a brand, perhaps. I don't know how much of it was originally written by Wycliffe. I know at least some of it was, but I mean, over the last several centuries, it's probably been greatly expanded. Wycliffe, of course, was persecuted, and I believe he was, he was martyred just for translating, making a translation of the Bible. He didn't have any Greek manuscripts. I believe he only used Latin manuscripts, but he made an English translation, and for that, he was persecuted. Yeah, the Jews hate the truth being out there. Right. I believe that was the 14th century. He, he was um, one of the first modern or, or semi-modern English translations. There were others. If you read Bede, the histories of Bede, the history of the church, and Bede was writing, I think, in the 8th century, but maybe it was the 7th. I forget. And he had written that it was common for um, church ministers to be tr making translations of the scriptures in the vernacular tongues of Britain at his time, which wouldn't be anything like modern English. It would be um, Saxon or, or whatever the language of the Bretons was, what we might know as Welsh today, things like that. So it was common in Bede's time. But by about the 12th century, the church was forbidding translations of scripture because they were losing control and they, they needed that centralized control in order to retain their own legitimacy. So they were forbidding it. So by the 14th century, when the Reformation was beginning and guys like Wycliffe showed up making those translations, they were being persecuted. Yeah, at different times. Weissman is trying to deceive us into thinking that Satan is dead, eliminated, that we have no enemy, that Satan is no longer with us, and that the only problem is our own sin. And I would agree that the principal problem is our own sin. If we didn't sin, our enemies would never be able to undermine us. But we have an obligation to identify our enemies and that is the struggle which we still face today. And especially today, since we are indeed in the days 
when Satan has the camp of the saints surrounded by all the nations, which are collective peoples from the four corners of the earth. Weissman is blinding men to that struggle by preventing them from identifying the devil. If you don't know your enemy, how are you going to win the war? How? If you can't identify your enemy. You've already lost. Yeah, you've already lost, especially when they are all among you. If, in the revelation of Christ, after a thousand years, Satan would gather all nations from the four corners of the earth against the camp of the saints, how could Satan have been eliminated on the cross of Christ? And what is going on right now as all Christendom is overrun with aliens? And why, in effect, is Weissman attempting to convince us that it is not Satan who is behind our being over, overrun with aliens? None of this makes sense. None of Weissman's argument makes sense. When you look at scripture, the fulfillment of prophecy, and what's going on in the world today, Weissman must be a purposeful deceiver. He must be. There is no other explanation for why a guy who is evidently literate and intelligent would insist on maintaining these lies and would devise crafty ways in which to corrupt these plain scriptures. It must be purposeful. Yeah, all these doctrines, they make us docile and useless. They just try to um, protect the Jews and just make people just get on with their lives and don't worry about it. But um, that, that's why we're being overrun, essentially. We have to stand up. We have to face our enemy. It's the only way. We all struggle with the flesh. We all struggle with um, lust or greed or, or whatever. Um, profligacy, excess, we drink too much, whatever. We all have some struggle with the flesh. If we're not drinking too much, we're gouging ourselves with potato chips and we're 50 pounds overweight. We all struggle with the flesh to one degree or another. Every one of us. Nobody can deny it. But when you believe that your only struggle is with the flesh, you don't know what sin is. You don't understand that it's not okay for your daughter to marry that nigger because he is not one of the seed of the woman. If you don't identify the parties of scripture, if you don't identify the races of scripture, you're going to be useless in this, this greater struggle that we have, which is a struggle that Weissman denies. If your daughter is marrying the devil, how can you see the truth of Peter's words who warned you to stay free of the devil? Or of the words of James who insisted that you must resist the devil and he will flee from you? If that devil is marrying your daughter, wow, you have to. We have a Christian obligation to identify these parties of scripture and do it correctly. But Weissman denies that the parties exist. The apostle Peter wrote, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil 
as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. If you can't identify those two seed lines, how, how do you do that? How, how do you interpret Peter's words? Is the devil anybody that sins? We all sin. Are we all the devil? Then why should we resist them? This don't make any sense at all. James said in chapter 4, verse 7 of his epistle, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If the devil is your flesh, then how does your flesh flee, flee from you? How does that happen? That There's so many inconsistencies in what they profess, in what Weissman believes, it, it's incredible. Yeah, all of scripture should add up together. It should all be streamlined. It should all make sense. There shouldn't be all these conflicts. And two seed lines, the only one that it all makes sense, that the whole Bible comes alive and you really, truly understand what's going on. Well, well it could be established that Peter wrote those words at least 30 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. So we see that the devil was still walking around tormenting people. 30 years after the resurrection. Then 60 years after the resurrection, John wrote in more than one epistle explaining that there were many antichrists in the world and telling his readers how to identify them. There, he also explained that those antichrists were spirits, embodied spirits, which are not from God. Likewise, Paul of Tarsus had written in chapter 2, of his epistle to the Thessalonians, that Satan was seated in the temple of God, pretending to be God. That was around 51 AD when he wrote that epistle. And Paul was speaking of the Edomite Jews who sat as high priests. So Satan was sitting in the temple of God 19 years after the crucifixion, which I date to 32 AD. And all of Weissman's commentators are wrong because the power of Satan was obviously not destroyed. Then, in his epistle to the Romans, written around 58 AD, Paul told them that the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Approximately 12 years later, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, where Satan was seated pretending to be God. But even that had not completely eliminated the devil. Over 30 years later, John wrote the Revelation. Over 30 years after Paul wrote Romans, John wrote the Revelation. And we see that Satan's seat had moved to Pergamos, a city on the western coast of Anatolia, or modern Turkey. Now today, Satan has franchises in every single town and city in the world. And if Weissman would deny that reality, then it proves that he too is just another one of his agents. If the revelation of Jesus Christ says that Satan's seat is in Pergamos, and says that there is a synagogue of Satan, which it does on several occasions, 
and that Satan would be loosed from the pit at some point in the future, at least a thousand years in the future. And Peter tells us the devil is walking around. And John tells us that there are many antichrists who were already born, along with all of this other evidence we have offered. How can Weissman not be lying where he says that Satan was eliminated at the cross? Maybe he is a shill. Maybe those who choose to follow Weissman today while rejecting our message are also shills. Yeah, and, and Bill, it's um, pretty amazing when you read the gospel how, um, you know, when Christ appears, all the apostles originally seemed pretty naive about everything. And, um, you know, probably with the Edomite government running everything. And then he's constantly given these parables over and over again and telling uh, them that these people are evil and they descend from Cain. And then you read the epistles 30 years later and they finally get it. And you can see that they realize that there's absolutely no hope for these Jews, these bastards, that they are absolutely evil. And we can only hope that people wake up in the same way and realize this as well. Well, well later in this series and presentations, it's going to be a whole series. I can't help it. We're only on page 14, right? <laughs> later in the <this> series <laughs> of presentations, we have 40 pages, I think, to go at least. Later in a series of presentations, I'm going to point out the fact that in Scripture, Old Testament and New, there are two classes of people. There are the wicked, men who have always been predestined to the lake of fire. And then there are sinners who are predestined to repentance and forgiveness and obedience to God. And these two classes appear throughout Scripture. Now, sometimes where it talks about the wicked, it's talking about wicked Israelites who went off into sin, and that's fine. But there are also another, there is also another class of wicked who cannot be redeemed, who are never offered redemption. They don't have an opportunity to become Christians to repent because it's not their their lot it's not their destiny it's not their destiny for one reason because it's not their origin their origin is not with God Refuse yeah they can't be converted <laughs> right they can't and there's never an offer to convert them what why yeah you know why does Christ say um, get away from me I never knew you and he's saying that to people, he depicts himself as saying that to people who believed in him. Lord, Lord, have we not done so many miracles in your name? Have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not done this or that in your name? Well, they must have believed in Jesus. And he said, get away from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Well, if yeah, were, it has to be racial. If they were sinning, why didn't he say, oh, I forgive you. I forgave everybody. I forgave everybody's sins. I forgave all sin. Why didn't he forgive their sin? Why were they still workers of iniquity? What could explain that? The only thing that explains that is two seed line. Nothing else explains that.
in in the um in in the opening of the epistle of Jude, for there are certain men crept in unaware who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Now, if Jesus came for everybody's sins, if everybody has an opportunity to um, repent and be forgiven for their sins by Christ, how the hell could you have men crept in unawares? How could that, how could that happen? That can't even happen. Universalism is so contrary to Scripture. And Weissman is a flat-out deceiver. The only way you could have men crept in unawares is if you have a group of people who were not invited to the party. What the hell, man? This is astounding to me that these people want to attack what we call two-seed line. They want to attack our interpretation of scripture based on um, arguments that they concoct about grammar, which are clearly wrong, and they haven't considered Jude or the Revelation or Paul. And when they do consider Paul, like Weissman, they only quote 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. They ignore what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. What the hell? It's yeah. about the law. They really don't seem to like um, the revelation. They really avoid it like the plague. And as with, um, you know, creeping in unaware, that just so perfectly describes the descendants of Cain. You know, if you're liars and robbers, you're never going to be able to build up a society. You, the only way is to infiltrate white societies who are productive and try to, you know, climb your way up and rule over them and get rich that way. And that so clearly describes the Jews of today setting up their banks. Well, well, absolutely. Men that crept in unawares, men that crept in unawares were not invited to the party in the first place. And then Jude says, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. In other words, God knew ahead of time that these men who were not invited to the party, outsiders, would eventually come into his assemblies to undermine them. And that's what Jude is explaining. And these men crept in unawares. Unaware to who? Not unaware to God, but unaware to the assemblies of Christ because two seed lines simply wasn't taught throughout the entire history of Christianity because this knowledge was indeed suppressed. Even though it's right there in the scripture. For, for um, many centuries, churchmen did not understand the Hebrew idioms. They translated the words literally because they were allegories, and they should have been translated literally, but we're supposed to <clears throat> um, understand that when there are idioms, that things shouldn't necessarily be interpreted literally. So... We didn't discover the Epic of Gilgamesh or other um, inscriptions and things like that that help us better understand the idioms until the, the 19th century. We couldn't have all the pieces to the story 
until those discoveries were made, until the archaeologists published the information that allowed men to realize the truth of Christian identity, the origins of our European race, and the racial message of scripture could not be made evident until that point. Because if you just think like medieval Christians did, that you're a Gentile saved by grace under this false concept of replacement theology, you're never going to find two seed line. It's never going to happen. So there has been an ongoing revelation of God, not an ongoing change in what is true, but there has been an ongoing revelation of God. Christian identity is clearly the result of that revelation. The British Israel people weren't crazy when they discovered themselves to have been descended from the ancient Israelites. They were that they were speaking the truth based on the the recent archaeological discoveries that allowed them to put the pieces together. Yeah, and it's clear this is how Yahweh planned it, that we would gradually awaken during the end times for the final battle. Absolutely. But the um, refuting Weissman's lies, we, we've necessarily gotten ahead of him, but that's okay. I believe it was necessary to do. We are still on page 15 of his book under the subtitle, the enmity and and we have a lot to discuss in relation to that and a lot of weissman's arguments in relation to that have yet to be refuted so we should probably pick that up in our next segment or, yeah or sure that sounds be, great or there should be another segment where we can pick that up and continue from there yeah thank you for being here i, I don't know if you have anything else to say but thanks for being here and and it's I pray it's edifying. I believe it will be. Yeah, uh, it was great to be here, Bill. Um, praise Yahweh, God of uh, our race, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all their descendants, our race, not the God of the evil Jews, Coco Coons, Nick Nogs, and other devils out there. Praise Yahweh. That's absolutely true. <laughs>